oh, the users used to drop by the office. <laughs> That's so crazy to me. I like, know. And the woman like, dressed up as Pinterest for Halloween. <laughs> yeah. And oh, here's here's ornaments for all of you. How many, how many people work at your company? Great. I'll hand yeah. make you 25 ornaments. I know. So great. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are talking about a company that is not a social media company. Or is it? Pinterest. For context, this is a company that has more users than Snap, though a little bit less than Twitter, is used by 80% of moms in America, and is actually a pivot of an early failed mobile shopping app. But we will get into that. Indeed, we will. As always here in Acquired. This is episode two of the A-plus IPO saga. We are, are proud to be coming at you. Um, what, two days here after trading? We start, it started trading on Thursday, and then yesterday the, the stock market had the day off. Yep. So we've got one day of, uh, of data here, and, uh, and we'll be, of course, talking about the entire story of Pinterest, but had a nice little pop in the market as well that, that we'll touch on. Yeah, we've got, so far, we have the P&L of the A-plus. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. All right. So listeners, today we are talking about a company's exit. And really, that's what we do on every episode of this show. But there are lots of company creation topics that David and I can't help but discuss. And as many of you know, we have a second show for that, The Limited Partner Show. So last week on the LP show, we spent an hour diving into a required topic for every entrepreneur, the term sheet. We went through line by line, analyzing each term of a standard series seed term sheet, and of course, offering our uh, our editorial on each one. If you are interested in hearing us, two non-lawyers try to put it in as plain of English as we possibly can, you should definitely consider becoming an LP. And we have a big announcement today, it's big news on that front. We have heard from a lot of you that you wanted to listen to the LP show, but you weren't sure how it worked. So we decided to change the sign up and offer every new person who joins a seven-day free trial, just so there's no need to take the plunge blind. You can listen right here in the podcast player of your choice and sign up in two taps, yes, only two taps, by tapping the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired. Yes, note the new and official name of the company, Glow. And as the person who works on the product behind the LP show, I am selfishly very excited to see how well the new trials feature works. So uh, please do not be shy to check it out. Yeah. Big congrats to Ben and team for getting all that out. Thank you, sir. And lastly, before we dive in, I want to thank the sponsors of all of season four, Perkins Cooey, counsel to great companies. We have with us today, repeat all-star guest and acquired listener, Kara Tatman, a partner in the M&A and public companies practice. So Kara... People pay a lot of attention to the IPO, but then move their attention elsewhere afterwards. You do a lot of work with companies after they've gone public. What is something that newly public companies have to start doing that we may not be aware of other than, of course, doing their quarterly earnings calls? That's a great question. So first and foremost, it's really about establishing a culture of compliance. A public company needs to have things like a disclosed code of conduct and whistleblower procedures. Employees at all levels need to be engaged in this new culture of compliance. Uh, For example, certain actions like signing a material contract may trigger the need for an SEC filing, and folks could end up in a fire drill if the right people aren't in the know. 
In addition to filing financial reports, like you mentioned, public companies file an annual proxy statement for stockholders. New public companies are usually excited to talk with professional stock analysts and major stockholders about the company's future, but companies need to avoid selectively disclosing what we call material non-public information to those folks under fair disclosure rules. Public company directors and execs are subject to certain trading restrictions and reporting obligations for their stock, and there are governance requirements like having a majority independent board. So having strong legal support is key for new public companies to make sure they can really focus on business growth and avoid regulatory missteps. Fascinating, and thank you, Kara. If you want to learn more about Perkins Coie or reach out to Kara specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in Slack. All right, David, that is all I have before the illustrious history and facts. (laughs) Are we ready to dive in here? We are. Let's do it. So today... We start our story in the 1980s, mid-1980s, early 1990s. Special time for me. Probably probably it was a little bit later for you, but for you, Ben, too. We we're all, all of us millennials growing up. And there was another Ben, Ben Silberman, who was growing up in the middle of the country in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, around this time. And uh, I remember growing up, my parents always used to joke whenever they talk about like shipping me off to somewhere random when I was like being bad growing up they'd say you know I'm gonna send you to Des Moines Ooh. apparently Des Moines is a really great place so, <laughs> man <laughs> anyway uh Ben Silverman talks about how it is a really great place and it's going to play a big part in the story here have, have um, you been to Des Moines I have not no it's but awesome it, it looks it's beautiful actually really awesome yeah yeah um is it part of the Quad Cities or is it that that uh, is deeper than my knowledge on yeah, uh, on the area on Midwest geography. Okay. Anyway, regardless whether it is or isn't, Ben Silberman is growing up there around this time, and he is a he's a middle child. He has two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. He comes from a family of of doctors of MDs. Uh, both of his parents are doctors. They are ophthalmologists in Des Moines. Uh, his grandparents were doctors, and both of his sisters would go on to become doctors later in life so ben thinks you know this is basically his destiny (laughs) he can't escape this but he's a he's he's a quiet kid and uh, he actually says at a talk later that he wants to be known in life for the things that he makes not the things that he says uh quite quite in contrast to your typical uh silicon valley unicorn (laughs) founder uh this is going to be a theme here yeah i was gonna say listeners like dave and i were chatting before the show it actually takes quite a bit of research to find a lot of the best stories about Pinterest because they're a very sort of do the work and let the work speak for itself company rather than beating a drum that many of their other companies do to attract talent and um, you know share the spotlight and, and be in the news a lot. Pinterest has just never really had that in their personality. No, totally. I mean, we, this is probably the the most work we had to do researching the history of the company <laughs> and founders, you know, in a long time. Not because there aren't great stories here. There are. We're going to tell them. But, you know, unlike Airbnb or, or Lyft or Uber, you know, the, the founders, uh, Ben uh, and Evan and Paul, just don't talk about them. <laughs> but we found them nonetheless. Uh, so Ben's growing up and um, he's he's quiet kid, uh, likes to, you know, let let his work uh, do the speaking. And, and he's very good at work. He's a very good student, as you would imagine, coming from the family that he comes from. He also 
supposedly collected stuff. Uh, hard to verify if this is true or this was this was added as part of the lore later. Feeling like I know Ben after watching basically every talk he's given <laughs> over the last 10 years in the last couple of weeks. Um, I actually believe him. Famously, he supposedly had a bug collection, you know, like where you uh, where you'd have a oh, that's board awesome. and then you would pin bugs onto it. I remember I think there was a Calvin and Hobbes uh, uh, yeah. series oh, yeah. about this. Yeah. <laughs> so great. So Midwest. Love it. <laughs> so Ben uh, is a great student. Ben Silverman. Ben Gilbert was probably also a great student uh, in high school. Uh, <laughs> uh, Silverman, though, goes to Yale and he does pre-med uh, as he is destined to do. Uh, he majors in political science and, and does pre-med on the side. And, you know, I remember I had tons of friends. I was in college right around this time, too. Uh, also do the same, you know, be pre-med, but major in something else. And one day, though, Ben wakes up. It's, it's his junior year. And he talks about he just kind of has this feeling that, you know, he's been doing pre-med and, you know, he's doing well, of course, but um, he's just not sure that medicine is right for him. Not his destiny. It's not his destiny uh, that he might have thought it was. He's interested in other stuff and in particular, and I can so relate to this because I was in basically the same moment in, in my life and history when I went to college. When he went to college was the first time he had his own laptop and his own you know, dedicated broadband high-speed connection mm. to the internet. And he basically fell in love with it. He was like, this is so cool. This is the industrial revolution of our time. And, um, you know, I'm a young person. I see this and he gets access to it in school for the first time. And he just starts tinkering. He uh, he builds a bunch of, you know, what he calls toys with friends while he's in Yale. He builds a website uh, where you can try on eyeglasses. Remember, his parents are ophthalmologists, so he's in college. <laughs> he builds this website where that you can virtually try on on eyeglasses. I don't even know how he did this at the time with whatever web technologies were. Yeah, because in like 2014 or whatever, when Warby Parker rolled it out, it was like, whoa, it's incredible. Yeah, he basically invents Warby Parker, <laughs> just a little bit ahead of his time. So he's tinkering around with all this stuff, and he decides, you know, I think I'm not going to go to med school, at least not right away. And so he goes and he talks to his other friends who were who were at Yale and, and uh, also liberal arts majors, but weren't pre-med, and asks them, you know, what are you guys doing? And they're like... Um, we're going to all these consulting interviews and investment banking interviews because <laughs> that's what you did. <laughs> and Ben says, oh, okay, cool. I should do that too. He does the whole consulting interview circuit. He ends up uh, getting an offer and joining a consulting firm, which I think has been acquired now. Uh, I remember these guys, Corporate Executive Board. They were based in Washington, D.C. And uh, so he joins them. He moves down to D.C. after school. And two big things happen there, really important things that are important for the future of Pinterest. One, he gets assigned randomly, I believe, to the IT consulting practice within CEB. He's like, this is great. I love the internet anyway. I'm going to work on IT you know, consulting related projects. And he gets really into it. And he starts reading TechCrunch, which had just come out around then. Of course, <laughs> I remember this too. And he's reading about all these startups out in California, like Dig and you know, Yelp was just getting started. This was the, the Web 2.0, dawn of the Web 2.0 era. And he's like, man, I really kind of want to be a part of this. The other really important thing that happens during his couple of years as, a, as an analyst at CEB, he meets his girlfriend, who would become his wife, Divya. Uh, and Divya worked also at CEB in the HR consulting group. So Ben's in the IT consulting group. Divya's in the HR consulting group. And uh, as the story goes, one night they're watching a movie uh, in D.C. and they watch The Pirates of Silicon Valley, uh, oh, which is uh, yeah. I still have not seen. I need oh, to watch incredible. this movie. It's so I've heard it's so great. It's kind of a, it's like 
a crime that I haven't watched this movie. I'm not sure if it's more cringeworthy or more like legitimately awesome, but it has <laughs> so much of both that, uh, yeah, I, I, I yeah. can't believe it was only ever a TV movie. I know. And it's about uh, Steve, the, Jobs uh, Steve Jobs and Bill, Bill Gates, Gates and the rivalry between them and, and, and Microsoft and Apple. Highly dramatized in like whatever 90s or early 2000s sort of like camera angles and, uh, and lighting. And it's just so, so utterly dramatic. And there's this ridiculous line in there. Ben talks about it. He, he, he gives a talk that I'll reference later uh, where he literally has a slide and he has this, this line, this quote on the slide. Uh, <laughs> there's this super cheesy line in there that I think uh, Bill Gates' character says, um, there might be something going on in California. <laughs> <laughs> and according to Ben, this inspires uh, him and Divya. And they're like, you know, what are we doing in D.C.? We got to move out to Silicon Valley and be where the action is. So they do. A little while later, this is um, this is 2006, I believe. They move out to Silicon Valley, out to Palo Alto. Ben ends up getting a job at Google in ad operations. Divya uh, gets a job. She wants to work at a startup, so she gets a job at a cool startup right off Calav in uh, in uh, Palo Alto. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Facebook. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she joins them in 2006. She's the first HR. Remember, she was doing HR consulting Whoa. at CEB. She becomes the first HR person at Facebook, oh, I didn't uh, know that which is pretty story. awesome and yeah. is also going to have a huge impact on Pinterest. Ben works at Google for uh, a little under two years, I believe. He really wants to do a startup. You know, he's like obsessed with TechCrunch. He's tinkering with all sorts of stuff on the side. And every night he's talking to Divya. He's like, oh, what about this? Like, I want to work on this. <laughs> and, and again, supposedly they're, they're having dinner one night. And, and Divya is just sick of this. She's working at a startup. And she's like, Ben, <laughs> you know, you might want to just either do this or or just stop talking to me about it <laughs> <laughs> and i could so imagine this i have uh, jenny and i have had many versions of this conversation and ben's like you know what you're right so it's fall of 2008 at this point and he decides he's gonna leave google he's gonna launch his own startup he's gonna live the dream and he has an idea and he's got a couple friends that he's gonna work on work on this company idea with and they want he wants to build a website that holds your that that stores your medical history your family's medical history so not like an emr but a place where you can store you know what what is your grandparents family medical history your parents medical history you know your siblings um and uh, actually seems you know really relevant so it's fall 2008 he goes off to do this he quits google he walks out and then like a week later lehman brothers collapses <laughs> uh, it's amazing we'll, 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 we'll get back later in the show to uh how impactful that event was on so many things in the world. I but, think there's um, probably four or five episodes now where that's been a, a, a turning point in the history of each of these companies. Yeah, totally. And the most direct impact that that has on on young Ben Silverman and uh, and the company that would become Pinterest is nobody else who he was talking about doing with this ends up leaving <laughs> and joining full-time. Uh, mm. I think some some people may have been at Google. Some people may have been friends. Uh, he's, he's talked about that were uh, in PhD programs. Everybody's like, nope, the world's falling apart. Yeah, everybody go to cash, keep your job, don't do anything risky. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and so Ben's out there. He's all alone. Uh, he's he's quit. He's gone. So he goes, and he goes out and he tries to raise money. He has this idea, this website he wants to build, but a nobody, no, no uh, angel investors or or early stage VCs at that point are investing in like anything, let alone some random you know ad ops guy from Google who's a solo <laughs> non technical founder. Uh, Come on, the bottom's the best time to to buy. This is when you should be investing. Oh man, I can't wait to do the Airbnb episode. Uh, hopefully later this year, where uh, 
we tell their version of this story, which is also very similar. <laughs> so he, he can't raise any money. He has no co-founders, no ability to build a product. He, he does a bunch of things just to kind of pay the bills and get by. Uh, fortunately, Divya is, you know, working at Facebook and, and doing pretty well. So uh, she keeps the keeps the, the, the fledgling family afloat. And, and they're still well, well pre IPO at this point. I mean, they hadn't found mobile yet. They hadn't, this is, this is still, no, uh, this is 2008. Facebook's doing well, but it's doing well on venture dollars, not on its, uh, its real business model. Yeah, totally. So Bend ends up moonlighting. He, he helps design a product and a company called Mighty Quiz, which was a Y Combinator uh, company. I forget, were they in the first batch? Uh, it it uh, wasn't the, the first, but it not was the first, early but a very batch. early, yeah. very early batch. Um, they might have been in the same one as Dropbox. Um, uh, I think Dropbox was in the was Dropbox in the Reddit batch because Reddit, I think, was the first. Dropbox yeah, may I can't have remember. been. Yeah, it was. It was. It was first two or three years. It was definitely early on. They powered trivia games for other websites out there. Uh, doesn't work, of course, but that's how he gets exposed to Y Combinator. I was always wondering. Ben goes back and, and he does talks at YC Startup School. And I was trying, like, Pinterest, did they do YC? He didn't do what? But that's how Ben became involved with YC. He's doing this and he's looking for something to do. He he comes upon, he realizes, you know, he loves this iPhone. And the iPhone SDK had come out earlier that year in 2008. And it just started to open up to third-party applications. Because remember, the first year, year and a half of the iPhone, it was only apps from Apple. There were no third-party apps on this. iPhone OS 2 that had the uh, the App Store and the SDK. Yeah. And and famously, Steve Jobs was against the idea initially of having third-party apps on the iPhone. But he Bezos-style disagreed and committed, and, and they shipped it anyway. Yeah. How different history would have been <laughs> if that had not been the case. So Ben sees this and he's like, okay, this might be the wave that I can, I missed this sort of web 2.0 wave, but this might be the wave that I can ride to uh, build a big company here. And so he hooks up with another friend from, from undergrad from Yale named Paul Schiara, uh, who <laughs> very random that Paul would end up becoming his co-founder because Paul lives in New York, <laughs> is also not technical, but Paul had a very important aspect to his background and skill set. He knew investors? He had been an associate at a venture capital firm uh-huh. called Radius Ventures uh-huh. in New York, and uh, he knew investors. And what was one thing that they needed? <laughs> Money. Money. <laughs> <laughs> Money. And Paul, of course, was also saw the opportunity that the opening of the app store would unlock says okay great we're going to build a company we're going to build iphone apps they decide to call the company cold brew labs because it sounded cool <laughs> uh, like listeners we try and pour over like what's the real origin story what's you know uh, what is the company it, like espousing ao this is like this is all we could find like it that it sounded cool and they just rolled with it yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that was the actual story. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, though, because, you know, they need to raise money and Paul has all these investor relationships, they decide it's natural. He should be the CEO of the company. So he's in New York and Ben is is out in Palo Alto and uh, he's the CEO and they hit the fundraiser. They decide, well, first they decide, what are they going to do to build iPhone apps? And they Ben has this idea. Um, I actually don't know who, whether it was Ben or Paul. They come up with this idea for a product that they call Tote. T-O-T-E. And we should pause here before diving into what Tote is. This was like aha moment number one for me doing the research that Ben Silberman was not the initial CEO of Pinterest. Yeah. I think that, David, you even texted me like, whoa, did you realize this? 
this is just one of those things that ends up buried in the lore that's the sort of super fun when we're diving in and trying to figure out what's going on. Ben, while the sort of visionary and you know the person that we chose to start the story with in, in his upbringing was not the CEO of the company. And despite having left his job at Google earlier and been searching around for a company to start, they decide that they're going to build this this app called Tote and release it on the App Store. <laughs> How they got the idea for this, I don't know. Um, the idea is that you get all these paper catalogs, you know, direct mail catalogs uh, sent to you in the mail for all sorts of things, you know, uh, fashion, uh, home uh, decor, you know, Pottery Barn, what have you. Wouldn't it be interesting if instead of getting those in the mail, you could get them on your new smartphone device? David, that is just what read. I want. It's just <laughs> what I want. Oh, man, I can't wait to read <laughs> more catalogs. <laughs> and so they decide they're going to do this. But there's no like API for, you know, getting products and catalogs from companies so they start getting catalogs and just like by hand ingesting the product data <laughs> into into <laughs> the app like typing in like oh here's this you know uh dress at forever 21 it's priced at this like take a picture of it here's the picture wild uh, so uh talk about doing things that don't scale and and this is 2008 like there was zero evidence that anyone wanted to do anything that resembled shopping on mobile yet yep uh end of 2008 beginning of 2009 they uh, so they think okay we've got this great idea we're working on this product now we're gonna we're gonna go out and we're gonna raise money with you know our our new great VC connections everybody turns them down they meet with like everybody in Silicon Valley people more or less laugh them out of the room rightly so at that point in time so they get so desperate this is this is later on in the spring and, uh, and actually David I'll I'll push you on rightly so because if they had invested they would have been the first investor in Pinterest so it is well, interesting right. it's like rightly so on, on rightly on so the for idea, this idea but <laughs> yes <laughs> well and that's the that's the art of uh, of early stage investing uh, which we'll we'll get into uh, uh, more as we go here so they're so desperate for money to pay the bills that they start applying to business plan competitions at colleges that they didn't even go to. <laughs> They're just doing anything to try and get some money. <laughs> uh, and presumably also some money to you know pay some developers to actually build this because they can't build this. According to Ben, they go to several. They go to one, I believe this was NYU. I couldn't, I couldn't verify, but I believe this was NYU's business plan competition. They end up getting second place in the competition. So they don't get any prize money. But what they get for coming in second is a meeting with a VC. And that VC happens to be a VC in New York, a brand new firm that has just gotten started at this point in time, which, side note, must have been incredibly difficult to start and raise a first-time fund in, uh, in the middle of 2008, 2009. God, yeah. uh, man, it was hard enough doing it at Wave and, in 2017, <laughs> 2018. But. And, and David, to double down on that, imagine how hard that is. You're an early firm. You're making one of your first few investments, and it's Pinterest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so these guys, First Mark Capital, which is now a great, much larger VC firm based in New York, uh, they'd just gotten started. <laughs> they were the second place uh, door prize in this competition. And so they meet with Paul and Ben and this app called Tote. And for whatever reason, they take a shine to them and they say, okay, great. We'll throw you guys a couple hundred K. Like, let's see what you do with this. So Firstmark becomes the first institutional investor in Cold Brew Labs. You can read the uh, the Form D that gets filed. Uh, Paul uh, signs it as the CEO of the company. They invest a couple hundred K. And we do this part later, but just to sprinkle some numbers on this, Pinterest 
their IPO price was at at nineteen dollars a share, and when they opened trading, it was at uh, twenty almost twenty four bucks a share. These shares were bought for one cent per share. Yeah, so they do pretty well, and I believe <laughs> First Mark still owns about nine nine ish percent of uh, of Pinterest. Man, the art of of early stage venture capital and betting on teams. Great investment there. With these resources, they uh, they hire some developers. Uh, they ship the app. But nobody really uses it because, you know, <laughs> again, who wants to really be shopping catalogs on your, at that point in time, 3.5 inch uh, iPhone screen? There's a few things there. It's like no one was conditioned to that behavior yet. Phones weren't rich enough in their functionality to sort of give you the confidence that doing things like shopping or booking travel or anything on them was was like actually going to work. And you you had sort of the the richness of the software required to do those things. At this point in time, you had 3G. I think you were past the edge days of the iPhone. But yep. You know, loading high quality images <laughs> still took a while. Totally. You know, this was the era where trying to update your app took like two weeks. So, you know, any time that anything was wrong, it, it, it's not like that we have sort of the number one, the update speed that we have today, but number two, the, the ability to change a lot of stuff on the server. I think the apps weren't that sophisticated yet and had a, just a lot of really heavy stuff on the client side. And so I think that not only were uh, was there only a small segment of people willing to do this crazy thing called shop on their phone, but then even more so, it was really hard to actually iterate on this thing. Yep. Hard on all fronts. <laughs> uh, so one day later on, a couple months later in, in 2009, Ben is visiting New York. I assume he's visiting because Paul is still there. And uh, a mutual friend says to Ben, hey, there's this guy here I know that I'm also friends with you guys seem really similar. Like you should just like grab a drink. I think you would really like each other uh, and meet while you're in town. The friend who that the mutual friend was talking about is a architecture grad student named Evan Sharp. And Boy, Pinterest uh, really keeps finding the exact right people for these roles with just the right backgrounds. <laughs> exact right people at the right time. Man. As with all of these stories, it's so funny when you dig into them, you know, the number of just random events that lead to these incredible stories and companies being created. You know, the same thing with the Lyft co-founders meeting on Facebook. So Evan was, he had an architecture background, but he actually had some super applicable skills from from tech companies, right? Was, was he at not, Facebook? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, uh, so he's just okay. an architecture grad student in New York. Ben and Evan grab a drink. They're chatting. And Evan's, you know, saying like he has, talking about how he, he loves, you know, he's so into architecture and design. And he's curated. He has thousands of architectural photos and drawings and designs that he's saved online but it's so hard to keep them organized and he's got this whole system and uh, and they're riffing and bed is like oh yeah like i love collecting things too I had and a bug collection. You know, yeah i had a bug collection <laughs> and i and and uh and i've had this idea of of um you know i love tinkering with stuff and like one of the things i'd always wanted to build is is a, a product that would let you collect things online and save them and organize them and they start riffing you know and eventually ben's like man like we're really we're really in sync you should come join me and paul at cold, at cold brew and and like work on what we're working on on tote and like maybe we can maybe we can move the product in this direction evan though you know he's still in grad school and, and he's super passionate about architecture and design and he does want to work in tech he wants to be a product designer but he's not super interested in a really early stage startup that uh, doesn't have a lot of great prospects. Um, so uh, in fact, what he's interested in, and I don't know if he already had this lined up, but when he graduates from architecture school, he goes and he works at Facebook as a product designer. But he's like, you know, uh, I like you guys. 
I, I don't think I want to do this full time and drop out of school, but um, but I'll work with you on the side. And and I wonder if he didn't have the job at Facebook yet. I imagine this helps him in his interview process <laughs> that he's working on the side with uh, with a startup that would become Pinterest. So they they all start working together. And there was, you know, along the same vein, Tote did have this feature that they already had in there that let people save items for later that they were browsing in the catalog. And the very few people who were using Tote, they all seemed to be using that. And as when they talked to users, they seemed to kind of like it. You know, and it makes sense. Uh, I was talking with um, uh, with my wife, Jenny, about, you know, what she uses Pinterest for these days and likes it. And you know, the analogy that she said to me is, you know, Pinterest is like the online version of when you're reading a magazine and you see something interesting and you tear the page out or you fold the page down to save it for later. And uh, that's literally what was happening in Tote. <laughs> and um, so they decide to focus on that and, and build out this feature a little more. And they combine it with, you know, sort of this broader idea like, okay, let's get beyond just shopping in catalogs, but kind of organizing everything that you come across on the internet. So Evan designs it in his free time and he comes up with probably the most important unlock that really makes this happen from a product standpoint. He comes up with the grid layout. Now it's, it doesn't seem all that remarkable. You go to Pinterest and, and everything is laid out in a grid of, of images. But at the time, this was this was really novel. Um, oh, yeah. The idea of laying out all these images in a grid in front of you. But there were there were a couple things. One, it was it was liquid and, and adaptable. So depending on the size of the images, the grid would readapt uh, and make the images all look good instead of resized to fit in like <laughs> very specific size squares. The other thing that they did, and I, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but the grid was oriented around vertical photos, not horizontal oh, photos. Interesting to allow and, sort of more more of them to to be across the screen at once. Yeah, I imagine that's why they did it. And and at the time, the first version of this of Pinterest was only on the web, not on mobile. And and it even despite Tote being you know uh, coming out of cold brew apps to build uh, labs to build mobile apps, they said this product needs to live on the web. Wouldn't even come to mobile until 2011. But then when it did, this vertical image prioritization was perfect for mobile. I remember back at this time. When Pinterest shocked the world with what is canonically the Pinterest layout, there were so many little clones. Like like everybody tried to add a Pinterest style view to their product, or you'd see on Hacker News, oh, Pinterest for X, and Pinterest meant that fluid layout that that was a sort of the board that was laid out in the, the, the you know adaptable fluid way to lay out images. There's sort of an interesting meta topic here that products get shaped using the technology available and what is easy using that technology. And so it makes sense that on the web for the longest time, um, what we saw were tables and what we saw were, you know, sort of articles that had inline images. And it's not an obvious and easy thing to do in early HTML and CSS to lay something out in this way and particularly to do infinite scroll and a lot of the things that we come to expect knowing that these layouts exist now. And it's, it's fascinating to think whenever you're designing a protocol or a platform or a, a core technology that you're really shaping the you know first five years or whatever, the first um, several set of use cases of what people actually do with it. Evan, he's an architecture grad student in New York who designs this uh, and would go on to be one of the most influential, you know, internet and mobile UI <laughs> paradigms, you know, of the last 10 years. Super cool. Uh, 
So they have this. They're, they're pretty excited about this new version of the product. It's now November 2009, Thanksgiving. And and over Thanksgiving, uh, Ben and Divya are at Thanksgiving. They're watching TV. Ben had been you know trying to think about what are we going to call this new product because tote doesn't make sense anymore. And of course, talking with Divya about it, they're watching TV. I assume at least most U.S. listeners are going to remember the commercials that were all the rage at the time, the Dos Equis commercials with the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> and uh, those are commercials were so great. How is and this related, David? Where are we going? It's really it's related <laughs> because they're watching TV. A most interesting a Dos Equis commercial with the most interesting man in the world comes on. And Divi is like, that's it. That's the name for the company. Pinterest. Because <laughs> they were talking about pin boards and the interesting man in the world. And that's when inspiration no strikes. Way. And that's where Pinterest is born. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I don't know what the moral of the story is there. Like spend more time watching TV with your loved ones. <laughs> that's it. I think, I mean, uh, spend more time with your loved ones feels like a, a, a great lesson to take away from any of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so great they've got a name for the product it's all they've got this super innovative grid ui they're ready to ship january 2010 they launch they email all their friends in palo alto everybody that they know from you know, google and divya's friends at facebook and uh, and and evan of course is you know going to facebook at this time and nobody uses it everybody's like what is this for <laughs> what am i supposed to do with this what's what's interesting to me too about this point in the story is it's not like they had done an exercise and said, okay, who's our core target user? What is our ideal customer profile? You know, we all know today Pinterest is, I I believe it's like two thirds used by women and they didn't come up with it and say, okay, what product can we build for moms? You know, it was very much, here's a thing that is very agnostic to who's using it and what they're using it for. And let's just see, Uh, I'm sure you'll get into this, but like, how how did they find that the right use case and who the real target user was? Yeah, well, so uh, before that happens, though, they're they're trying to do everything they can to get their friends to use it to you know do growth hacking, you know, which is all the rage of the day. So what they do, <laughs> what they think is going to be really cool, they uh, they go to the Apple Store. Ben goes to the Apple Store in Palo Alto. I don't know if he does this every day or just for a couple of days. Okay, and so he you just pull it he up goes on all the computers. To, yeah, he goes to the he goes to <laughs> all the computers and he changes the home screen to Pinterest <laughs> on all the computers in Palo Alto. Uh, has precisely zero impact. <laughs> they um, they apply to TechCrunch Disrupt and they get rejected. <laughs> um, and didn't they like pull some strings to like get in somehow? I guess First Mark was a sponsor uh, and uh, they pull some strings and they get them like a booth at TechCrunch Disrupt, but they're not part of you know the battlefield. <laughs> like it's, it's things, things are bad. <laughs> Everybody's pretty down. But there is a ray of hope. And that is some of the people that they've been trying to get to use it, uh, they were literally anyone they know, were Ben's friends back in Des Moines uh, that he'd grown up with. And these people were like so far from Palo Alto, techies but they seemed to like it and the other thing they had going for them back in des moines was ben's parents and ben's mom you know they're still ophthalmologists in in des moines they have all these patients and ben's mom just starts telling all of her patients to use pinterest God, this is like <laughs> and, the equivalent uh, of like when uh, the the snapchat story where it was evan spiegel's yeah. mom was a teacher uh, yeah. at school uh, or no 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 uh, his cousin i think uh, that's right his cousin was yeah, was, was a in, high school student student and they were using it to message yeah yeah because um i messaged another apps were banned messaging apps were banned yeah so great but they all had their ipads this is like 
the Pinterest equivalent. So they start seeing this and they're like, ah, oh, okay, interesting. I, I'm not sure if this was related or not, but on a whim, um, Ben goes to a conference in Salt Lake City uh, that, that January called the Alt Summit, which is a big women-focused design and blogging conference. I think a friend had suggested that he should go there, uh, but I don't think he had really that much intention of, oh, this could be, this could be the promised land of our user base. He goes there, he's talking to everybody about Pinterest, gets a bunch of people signed up, they start using it. And then on the flight back from Salt Lake City to San Francisco, uh, well, at the conference, he, meet, he meets a woman named Victoria Smith, who's a blogger who lives in, in San Francisco. She has a, a blog called SF Girl by the Bay. She's actually moved to LA now, which is, of course breaks the hearts of you know, all San Francisco people. But uh, at the time, she lived in San Francisco. And so they kind of hit it off, and they're on the flight back. And uh, they decide, like, hey, let's do a collaboration together. So Pinterest is gonna, gonna work with SF Girl by the Bay, and we're gonna do this thing called Pin It Forward, where uh, Victoria will create a pin board with all the things that mean, quote unquote, mean home to her, things that inspire her of home, and then they're gonna tag another blogger and ask the next blogger to do create a board doing the same thing for them and then just kind of pass it around through all the bloggers that are in this network and have been at the alt summit and uh they do it sounds like a growth hack it sounds like a growth hack the bloggers get really into it and they of course all have their like you know small but rabid fan bases of their blogs their audiences love it they start using pinterest lo and behold things start to turn around and 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 the company starts to work and so this is a total aside this is like this is 2010 a couple of years later, 2012, Pinterest is now a hot startup in the Valley. I'm starting business school at GSB at Stanford. And uh, in my electronic business class, we had this great professor, Heim Mendelssohn. He's like a it's an amazing legend. name for our class. <laughs> I know. Electronic business. He's a, like an old school guy. This is a holdover. But he's super smart. And he made us in like the first week in class. Uh, do the same thing on Pinterest. And I never understood why he had us do this random assignment on Pinterest. And now I know. This is why. Uh, what, this the is pin it Pinterest forward started. exercise? The, yeah, the pin it forward exercise. But huh. he didn't tell us it was the pin it forward exercise. It was just like, all you guys, like, go create a pin, go create a Pinterest board of your hometowns and what, like, home means to you. <laughs> huh. And only now, years later, do I see where he got the idea for it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting thinking, too, about why it made so much sense for bloggers, because for them, whether it was part of their own process as a tool so you can imagine it's kind of difficult to go and collect good links and good images and put them somewhere if you're trying to go look at 100 different websites and then write a blog post about sort of a synthesis of all this stuff. So it's both an interesting tool there, but then also it's probably the best way to showcase at that time a set of things that you want your your fans or followers to go and look at much better than you know making a separate WordPress blog post for each thing that you want to show off. Totally. There's there's a great talk. Ben goes back to the Alt Summit in 2012, uh, and that's where he has the uh, the the slide that has the there might be something going on in California uh, in that talk. Uh, but one of the questions from the audience is this woman who says Pinterest is uh, something like the best thing that has happened to my business and my following, and the worst thing that has happened to my actual blog because I now do everything on Pinterest. Like yeah, yeah it's just so much. It's so much a. Uh, better vehicle for if you're, you know, a design blog and you're sharing ideas and uh, products that you find with people to use a service like Pinterest than it is to use a blog. The site starts growing about between 40 to 50% month over month at that point. 
uh, it's still really small, but it really starts taking off and, and it sustains that growth rate for years. And I mean, that's that's a magic number for startups. If you're growing 10% week over week or sort of that 40, 50% range month over month, I mean, that is, you are a high growth startup and that is uh, uh, that is how you know you're onto something. Yeah. All these angel investors that two years ago <laughs> would, would barely even take a meeting with Ben, uh, they start to notice that something's going on here. So <laughs> in, in May of that year, uh, Shauna Fisher, who was the head of M&A at IAC, she had started using Pinterest, probably heard about it from a blog, and she loved it. She emails them and she's like, hey, guys, I want to invest. <laughs> and they, their minds are blown. Catch me up. What, what year is this? Is this after they were out of private beta? They're still in private beta, and okay. they would be in private beta for the next two years. So you had to, you had invites, and you could invite your friends. Um, so the site is still growing like crazy, but and a lot of the invites were distributed via these blogs. Ah, interesting. So Shauna invests, and then she introduces Kevin Hartz, who's the CEO of Eventbrite, co-founder and CEO of Eventbrite, with his wife Julia at that point, uh, and also a prolific angel investor in Airbnb and others. Uh, he invests. Friend of the show, Scott Belsky, invests. Uh, and there's like serious momentum behind this company. This is a fun aside, but also part of the story. July, a couple months later, they do the first real life Pinterest meetup uh, with Victoria with the SF girl by Bay uh, by the Bay <laughs> uh, vlog at a store in Noe Valley called Rare Device, uh, which is now moving to Hayes Valley, but is like right down the street from from where Jenny and I live now in, in oh, Noe wow. Valley. Too funny. Uh, that's the first physical Pinterest meetup, and Ben goes. And all these people come out. It's not it's not like a huge amount of people, but they're all like so engaged and they love the product so much. And they're talking about how all the things that each other is pinning on about their homes and about everything else on on Pinterest is inspiring them to go do these projects. And they're supporting each other and working with each other on these projects. And Ben is like, this is it. We have figured out what Pinterest is, who it's for. And we're going to double down on this. And at this point, Ben Ben is doing things like giving out his personal phone number, giving out his address, saying like, hey, please reach out to me anytime you have any any feedback. Or he really started doubling down on building this sort of um, uh, wildly intimate relationship with the Pinterest users around this time. Yeah. And meetups start happening all over the country. And so at this time, <laughs> this is this is great. Remember, Divya was the first HR person, uh, Ben's wife. Now, uh, I don't think they're married yet, but a girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, Divya, was the first HR person at Facebook. <laughs> ben uh, is so inspired about how fast they have to move here. He copies, he gets a poster of um, Facebook's Move Fast and Break Things motto, and he makes that the Pinterest motto. <laughs> and no then way. redesigns it. They redesign it in Pinterest font and, and you know, red lettering, and they post it all over the office. <laughs> so the opposite of pinterest's like actual mantra as a company uh, yes. for years and years after that yep but in the in these these very early days huh. this is when he realizes okay we got we something gotta go here and we yeah. gotta move fast so they've just raised this angel round they keep growing and then the next spring they end up raising a 10 million dollar which was series a from led by bessemer which was a very large Series A for the time, which which uh, closed in May. I want to I want listeners to pay attention to the timeline here. This round closed in in May. Just to continue tracking the share price here, that's at seventeen cents a share. Yeah, seventeen cents a share. Wow. And what was interesting about this? So Sarah Tavell, who's now who's a great investor and now a GP at Benchmark, she was an associate at Bessemer at the time, and she had heard about uh, about Pinterest, and she had found them, and she had lobbied the firm to do it. And Jeremy Levine, the partner who ended up leading the deal, he was coming out to 
San Francisco one day for to meet with a total, he writes a blog post, to meet with Minted, another company. And she convinced him like, hey, we got to go down to Palo Alto. We got to meet with these Pinterest guys. And Jeremy had like 10 minutes before his flight. He was like, okay, fine, I'll go, go down. And then ends up canceling his flight, staying, and they, and they do the deal. But it was There's totally some, Sarah I, I, who he was like supposed founded to have, and lobbied it. It was supposed to be a longer meeting. And then there was traffic because it was raining or something. And by the time he got down there, there was only 10 minutes for the meeting. Um, and yeah. then, of course, it's interesting enough that you just skip your flight. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I think we should put a stake in the ground right here and say, just let's notice a trend of amazing women doing things like naming the company, like pounding the table to make the investment. Um, I, I think Sarah should get a huge amount of credit for this, spotting it super early. Exactly. You know, it's it's Divi who comes up with the name. It's Victoria Smith and the Alt Summit, that, uh, which is all women-focused bloggers and designers that come, you know, lands the the product market fit for the company it was it was shauna at iac who was the first you know elite angel investor to recognize the potential of the company and want to invest uh and then it was sarah who found them and and led to and pounded the table to do the series a at the same time this is super fun so sb angel ron conway's firm they had passed on the company during the (laughs) angel round Ben and I, a great friend of ours, uh, Leslie Kincaid, was working at SB Angel at the time uh, here in Silicon Valley. And uh, Kevin Carter, who was also there at SB Angel, he was like, man, I think we might have missed this during the Angel round that had happened uh, with, uh, with Scott and, and, and Kevin and Shauna uh, the past summer. And, and maybe we should like see, you know, we don't really do Series A, but like we might want to really try and take another look here. And so uh, Leslie and Kevin lobbied within the firm that SV Angel that like, hey we'd made a mistake we should try and push our way into this round too. Kevin specifically was like Leslie what do you like what do you think this is a, a female focused site or at least that seems to be the user base so Leslie pulls together a focus group of of three women I think at the firm and basically went back to him and said yeah I know we passed but there's there's no way we can miss this. So SV Angel ends up coming in to this series A as well and then this is so great both Sarah and Leslie, Sarah leaves Bessemer, Leslie leaves SB Angel, go and join the company as early employees. And uh, and we have to give a shout out to Leslie too. She's helped us with a bunch of these stories and research here. And um, she's now she now runs um, the office and is, and is chief of staff to the CTO at Convoy up in Seattle, which is another great company that will be an acquired episode someday. Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for the stories that are to come in this episode. And listeners, you can find links to uh, uh, some some cool posts from Leslie's Instagram over the years uh, uh, from 10 employees onward at uh, at Pinterest. Yeah, it's super fun. Go look at these these pictures that Leslie has uh, documenting all this because uh, I think this is the first time we've had like actual visual <laughs> accompaniments to the stories that we tell here. Yep, across um, three different offices and yeah. Yeah, super fun. So we're now in July of 2011. They hit a million users. Remember, it's still not open to the public. You still have to have an invite to join. In August of 2011, they're <laughs> <laughs> listed as one of Time Magazine's 50 best websites, which actually meant something back then. <laughs> now, probably less relevant. Uh, remember, the it was May when the Series A got done. We're still in August. And Andreessen Horowitz uh, spearheaded by Connie Chan, who was on the deal team at the time there, had gotten wind of all this great stuff that was going on at Pinterest. And they come in, 
Jeff Jordan and Connie come in uh, and lead the Series B just a few months later in the company. They raised $27 million at a $200 million valuation. Yeah, for uh, for those keeping track at home, share price is now up to $0.72. Cents, and in that time from May to August, the valuation goes from $40 million to $200 million. This is what happens when you hit that exponential growth curve. So they now have tons of resources. A couple months later, though, in April 2012, a transition happens. And this really was, at this point, a long time coming and probably had de facto already happened, if not officially. Ben Silberman finally becomes the actual CEO of Pinterest in April 2012. Paul leaves the company very amicably, ends up doing a few things. And he is now actually the chairman of a electric, uh, yeah, an eVTOL company, vertical takeoff no and landing way. Uh, flying cars company. Yeah, called Joby Aviation. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, super fun. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an LP show prediction for the, uh, what was our, from our 2019 predictions. Yeah, eVTOL becomes a thing. <laughs> that spring though the the growth just continues on a tear so the 2012 presidential campaign is in high gear at this point in time uh and obama's running for his second term and uh, mitt romney's running against him and both actually first and romney mitt romney's wife and then michelle obama join pinterest <laughs> and on the campaign trail start you know building pin boards oh, of, i forgot of about that. their life and inspiration and it is huge for huge for the company in May. So we're now one year from when the Series A had happened, uh, the Bessemer and SV Angel Series A. We're now in May of 2012. Rakuten, the Japanese e-commerce company, comes in, leads a $100 million investment in Pinterest at a $1.5 billion valuation. Man, think about when you're raising money for a company and you're like, you're selling 20 to 30% of it. The leverage that they had to have at that point to say, sure, we'll accept $100 million, but it's going to be on For one fifteenth of the company. Yeah, wild. You know, when Leslie had joined, she had joined in November of 2011. So just a few months before, she was the 10th employee. <laughs> so there were only like 10 people at the company. Is this a good time to talk about the really forward-looking investment in general administrative uh, creating infrastructure? Okay, so listeners, one thing that... If you remember one thing from this episode to take away, it's Pinterest thought so far ahead on a lot of things that most companies say, ah, we'll think about that later. Think finance, think HR, think people ops, think workplace, uh, think culture. It, it was amazing starting really at the, you know, very early on um, from the company that Ben wanted to build and, and also, you know, in bringing Leslie in and, and employee 10, really starting to invest ahead of their growth rather than, you know, a, sh a ship that's burning down and you're trying to patch it while it's <laughs> on fire. Well, I feel like this is really <laughs> where the story of Pinterest and the history of Pinterest diverges from a lot of your typical kind of Silicon Valley hyper growth company. They, they just, they'd done the A, then they'd had this crazy growth. They'd done the B a couple months later. And like your average Silicon Valley company at this point would have been like, great, let's pour all this money into growth and like, go, go, go. And to Pinterest and, and Ben's credit, I think in the long term, uh, but this really impacted the trajectory of the company. They said, now is the time to pause and build the foundation to support this hyper growth that we know we're going to go through. So yeah, they brought in Leslie as site operations manager. They got really serious about hiring executives and they start bringing over again. Remember Divya is head of was the first HR person at Facebook. They start bringing over some great, great, great people from Facebook uh, to come in and build out 
all the infrastructure around the company. So a guy named Tim Kendall comes over and Tim had been an early Amazon guy and then had joined Facebook also very early, was head of all monetization within Facebook. He joins Pinterest in March 2012, a first running product. He then eventually runs product engineering and all of builds the whole ads business for the company. He becomes president of the company. They bring over Barry Schnitt, who was running marketing and communications at Facebook. He comes and joins Pinterest. Uh, Don Fall, who was running operations at Facebook, comes and does the same at Pinterest and really a whole suite of, and I remember I have lots of friends who also were at Facebook and moved over to Pinterest at this point in time. And they start really building out a lot of the senior management and functions to scale up the company. And all these people end up staying a really long time. Uh, So Tim is now CEO of a company called Moment, uh, but he stayed about six years uh, and built out all of these things at, uh, at Pinterest. The other thing that they start really investing in and playing to their strengths is women engineers and women on the engineering team. And this becomes a huge ass. I mean, this is well ahead of uh you know all of the all of the things we'll cover in the uber episode yeah, the philosophy <laughs> uh, was our our team across all functions should re- reflect our user base or you know trend much closer to that than most of the industry so they have a, an early pinterest engineer named tracy chow uh really becomes uh, an absolute leader in recruiting for the company and diversity and uh in engineering and in silicon valley more broadly pinterest has way higher percentage of female engineers than your average Silicon Valley company um, and is a huge asset to them. It's interesting. I was looking at it right before this. It was it hovers around 25, 26% of their their engineering team right now. A fun story too around all this time and right as Leslie was was joining the company. So they had been in Palo Alto and their first office there, which you can go look at all our photos and their great early photos. They end up moving to San Francisco and this was a huge moment at the time. I remember this like because... Palo Alto was still headquarters of Silicon Valley and where startups were. And there were very few companies that were in the city. And Pinterest moving up from Palo Alto to SF was the start of really the center of gravity shifting up to San Francisco. And it happened because Tim had just joined, Tim Kendall, and he had a friend who knew about, they were looking for a big office space to support all this all this hiring they were going to do. This is the he chicken factory? Friend, yes. He had a friend <laughs> who knew about an abandoned chicken factory. <laughs> in Soma, in San Francisco, right next to the Caltrain station, like perfect location. And uh, and so they jumped on it. And the Pinterest now, awesome. the core of what's now the Pinterest campus right around the Caltrain station there started in an abandoned chicken factory. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, there you have it. So through all this time, though, and all these fun stories, there's no revenue. <laughs> there's no business model. Like the product is seeing tons of usage and engagement and growth, um, but they're not making any money, not a dollar of revenue. And uh, and they're even and, making and, noise about the fact that they're not. They're getting pressed for this. They're getting, you know, Ben Silverman's getting asked at conferences and his party line is we want to be really thoughtful about this. We want to have something like measured growth or thoughtful growth. And we want to do monetization when we feel it is right for our, our users, which they towed for years after you would think they would start experimenting with monetization. Which is true and also fits their personality, but also they have a very traumatic experience with this right after the Series B, but before Tim Kendall joins to come in and, and ultimately build out the ad and monetization platform, they were seeing that one one of the things that started happening on Pinterest from the early days, and especially coming from the blogging community, is people posted pins 
and the pins were based on they put affiliate links in them so when you click through the pins to the link it would be an affiliate link to whatever the retailer was that was selling the product and then the bloggers or whoever posted the pin they'd make a they'd make a cut on that transaction and so Pinterest definitely saw that this was going on. They thought, well, this is pretty interesting. It was probably designed as an experiment from the get-go, but they worked with a company called Skimlinks uh, in early 2012. And they, without warning, they pulled all of the affiliate links, rewrapped them with Skimlinks-powered Pinterest affiliate links, <laughs> and Pinterest took over all those affiliate links that were running through the site. It caused a huge uproar and to Pinterest, Ben and Pinterest credit, they, they pulled the plug on it immediately and they apologized. And actually later on in 2015, they would kick all affiliate links, period, off the platform and just ban them totally. Um, but it was so powerful and demonstrated the monetization potential and, and Pinterest place in the commerce flow that for years afterwards, they were still getting checks <laughs> from like that week or two that Whoa. they had affiliate links on. They were still getting affiliate checks and it was like, a very powerful uh, way to prove um, the potential here. Um, yeah. But then they bring they bring Tim on and they don't do anything, Ben, as you alluded to, for, for the next two years uh, around monetization after this. Like 2014 is when they started Yep, it, it was May, May 2014. They launched Promoted Pins. And by this point in time, they had built all the product and engineering and ad sales functions and organizations to do this right. Um they launched promoted pins. The first promoted pin is from Vineyard Vines, <laughs> the uh, the East Coast uh, fashion retailer. It goes well. That's they, they work just like we talked about with Emily White on the on the Instagram episode. They work with a few select uh, partners uh, to start, and then in December 2014, they open it up to everyone, and it starts working really well. So much so that in March of 2015, uh, there's so much hype around the company. They were about to hit 100 million users. They've just launched this advertising platform, Promoted Pins, that's going well. They raise at an $11 billion valuation uh, going from... They had raised a few times at successively higher valuations from the 1.5 uh, earlier, uh, but this is a massive jump up. This is a pretty firm commitment to we're going to be a public company. It's really hard when you raise money at higher than a $10, $10 billion valuation to say, you know, we're on an acquisition track of some sort yeah. not just a public company but like this is the next facebook uh you know there are all these people that have come over great people from facebook there's all this potential the ad platform is working super well user growth is going great you know think about this 11 billion dollar valuation march of 2015 <laughs> and uh, we'll get into the ipo just now so that's been four years yeah been exactly. four years since an 11 billion dollar valuation so things do continue to go well however user growth at this point right after this basically flatlines and they had just hit 100 million users but as we've been alluding to they have start having a huge problem they've saturated uh most of their core target market in the u.s they do eventually start going internationally back in, in starting in 2016 2017 and that reignites growth but they just can't get men to use the product <laughs> um, and is still a big issue to this day. Yeah, um, to flash forward to some some um, numbers from the S1 listeners. So today in the US, so they're up to what, 250 million users. Yep. Um, but, globally. But it, globally, but in the US here, it's 82 million. Um, if you go and you look three years ago in Q1 of 2016, that was 65 million users in the US. So when you look at their 
very nice user growth, albeit not monetization growth internationally, and compared to the United States, international looks like, oh, great, a high growth company. US looks like, uh, okay, it's been pretty flat for a while. When they did that big fundraise, the vision, like we were saying, was this is going to be the next Facebook. Um, and I think what happens over the next couple of years is uh, they realize, the market realizes this is going to be a great company, but has a very specific target market that is not every person in the world. A very specific target market and a very specific time and place for use rather than all day, every day like Facebook. So that said, though, the monetization engine starts really working. By 2016, two years after they launched it, they did $300 million in revenue in 2016. 2017, that grows over 50%. They do $472 million in revenue. 2018, that grows hugely again. They do $755 million in revenue, which is a serious amount, especially given the... And it speaks to the power of like they saw with the affiliate link test, the power of where they sit in the commerce flow, that even though they have a relatively smaller user base compared to other big social networks, there's incredible monetization potential here. Yep. If you think on, in like a Porter's Five Forces sense, um, they they have a tremendous amount of power in this value chain from when the user sees something they're interested in into where Pinterest can sort of steer their attention and how they can derive monetization from doing that. They go into great detail in the S1, but this isn't just point of purchase. It's awareness, it's reminding people about the product, it's steering them to a purchase, and then it's actually executing the purchase. So it is sort of all across the life cycle of you buying something. On the back of all this, just last month in March of 2019, two very big things happened from the company, two very big announcements. First, Leslie Kilgore joins the board. Do you remember Leslie Kilgore, Ben? I do. And I was trying to remember from where. Uh, so I went and, and looked her up on LinkedIn. <laughs> I thought it was something where I like may have known her personally or something like that. And then I looked up on LinkedIn and I was like, oh, previous Acquired episode. Yes. It's almost like we know her personally. <laughs> the Acquired superhero uh, with the riding shotgun alongside Barry McCarthy from our Netflix two-parter, Leslie Kilgore, who is the CMO at Netflix and Now on the board at Netflix. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so she just joined the board of Pinterest, which is awesome. I love it when love it when the heroes and and not Carl Icahn <laughs> come back into <laughs> into these stories. Um, and then, of course, second on March twenty second, Pinterest files publicly files its S one to go public, and then over the next week and a half, as we covered on the Lyft <laughs> IPO episode, the Lyft IPO happens. We'll talk about that in a minute during narratives. Um, but when Pinterest sets the range for its IPO on April 8th, this is after the dip in trading from Lyft, they set it at 15 to $17 per share, which equates to about a, a range of eight and a half to $11 billion valuation below the last private round, which they had done another private round in 2017 that valued the company at $12.3 billion. So this is pricing below. It is. And, and listeners, like they've done a Series D, Series E, F, G, a G1 or something like that. And then they stop counting the letters, but there's six rounds that are in this sort of $200 million, $300 million range of amount of money that they're they're raising. They had that rapid acceleration in uh, valuation and then continued to raise sort of hundreds of millions of dollars over and over again, somewhere around that price point for a while. As 
the user growth, especially domestically, was was flatlining. So then on this past Wednesday, April 17th, they price the IPO at $19 a share above the range, uh, and that equates to a $12.6 billion market cap, very slightly above the last private valuation. And then on Thursday, they start trading and they pop up 28%, close at $24.40 a share or a $16 billion market cap. So a nice, you know, nicely above the last private round, but still not a, not a 10x here. The share price is now above where every shareholder bought. So, you know, we've only had one day of trading and uh, I think we can discuss this, but we saw sort of what happened with uh, with Lyft in the couple of weeks after they they started trading. But from what we know so far, it looks like the strategy of pricing modestly and and being below the the last round and then uh, uh, letting the the pop sort of happen in the market uh, has worked. Yeah, as opposed to Lyft, which we saw increased its range during the roadshow several times, then priced above the roadshow, then popped big time on the first day, and then of course has been down since then so if there's one thing we should probably learn for ourselves on acquired is it's very likely we'll see a pop on the first day no matter what and then it's you know in the weeks and months that follow that we should really be paying attention yeah yeah so uh you know i think we and everybody were very excited uh and still are very excited about lyft and their ipo but uh there was a lot of euphoria that has been tampered over the last several weeks so let's go into to narratives here so Listeners, what we decided to do in these IPO episodes is um, walk through what the bulls are saying and what the bears are saying. And that way, as we get into kind of our discussion, we can kind of have a baseline representation of of both sides. On the bull case, I think their growth rate relative to their comps of Twitter and Snap is really encouraging. They're growing much faster than than Snap or Twitter. To put some some numbers behind that, Pinterest grew its user base 23% last year. Twitter and Snap saw user numbers decline. And so when you think about sort of this this tier of uh, of ad-based, you know, internet social, I think we can leave social out for, for Pinterest, but <laughs> social-ish business models. Platforms. Um, platforms, yes. That, ad-based platforms. Yes. Uh, very interesting to compare there and, and, and very promising. The other thing is, and this is from a great financial summary on Seeking Alpha that we'll put in the in the show notes, if the growth rate for both revenue and expenses stays the same in 2019 as it did in 2018, Pinterest will be profitable. They'll, they'll earn pre-tax $65 million because of the way that the business is monetizing well and user base continues to grow, especially internationally, uh, more monetization domestically and then growth internationally. There's really going to be a business here. And, and I think you got to really whip out your discounted cash flow models to try and understand, <laughs> is, it, is it worth $13 billion over some time frame? But contrasting this against other IPOs that we're seeing recently where there may not be profitability in sight, um, wouldn't shock me if it happened in the next year, 18 months. Yeah. Well, Pinterest is a classic case of the historic technology company business model of very high fixed costs that and basically zero variable costs that get leveraged over a large user base. And once that user base passes a point where the revenue from per user is is covering the fixed costs, everything above that is basically pure margin. Uh, now, that is definitely not the case with uh, marketplaces and especially real world marketplaces as we uh, <laughs> saw with Lyft and we'll talk about soon with Uber. But it doesn't mean they're bad businesses, but it's just a very different business structure. Right. Do you have anything else in, in bulls before we go into bears? Um, you know, I think the 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 bull case, we, we alluded to this earlier, but um, 
you know, I think Pinterest actually does a really nice job in the S1 laying this out. And, and, and Ben has, Silverman has always said this about it, that it is, you know, you were joking about not a, oh, is it a social network? Is it not a social network? You know, in the S1, they say Pinterest is the productivity tool for planning your dreams. Dreaming and productivity <laughs> may seem like polar opposites, but on Pinterest, inspiration enables action and dreams become reality. Visualizing the future helps bring it to life. In this way, Pinterest is unique. Most consumer internet companies are either tools or media. Pinterest is not a pure media channel, nor is it a utility. It's a media rich utility that satisfies both an emotional and functional need, et cetera, we call it discovery. And I think that is perhaps one of the strongest bull cases here is that for product discovery, there is nothing quite like Pinterest in the funnel. You know, for Google, uh, Google serves demand fulfillment better than anything known to man. You know, Facebook also serves discovery uh, to a certain extent, but I, I think it's not quite in the same way or as effective at it as Pinterest is. Uh, Pinterest is where you go to specifically look for something. At Facebook, you're being shown products as you're looking at other things. The Facebook newsfeed is like the best ad format of all time, but it it can be a little disruptive. Uh... Yeah, it's like ads in a newspaper, whereas to bring it full circle, Pinterest is like browsing a catalog where you are intending to to get inspiration and then act on that inspiration. Yep. So the biggest bear case, at least to me, is that they will not be the only ones to own this market for long. Uh, We've seen Instagram before try to get into uh, both commerce and a Pinterest-style functionality of discovery. Both of them have not gone well. Um, Their recent effort into commerce is much more serious, and they've they've launched collections, which is going to look a lot like Pinterest boards. If Instagram can do to Pinterest what it did to Snapchat with stories, they'll be in big trouble. Uh, But... I think to flip back to Bull real quick, it's it's a reasonable argument to make that Pinterest actually fulfills a much different emotional need when you open that app uh, than Instagram does. And Instagram may not be able to offer the same solution to that job to be done of getting inspired and collecting things in its format uh, that, that Pinterest has been able to do by really solidifying its brand and this is what you go to Pinterest for. Yeah, I mean, totally, too. Uh, having gone and watched, you know, uh, all these talks by by Ben Silverman over the last few years, to his total credit, you know, he's been, if you were to listen to the narratives leading up to the IPO, he and Pinterest are talking about how Pinterest's goal is not to get you to spend more time online, it's to inspire you to do projects offline and take action in the real world. That sounds like a soundbite he came up with to market Pinterest in reaction to everything that's happened with Facebook and Instagram and the rest of the internet over the last you know 24 months. Uh, that's not true. He's been saying that since 2012. Um, and uh, Pinterest has always been about that. And so, yes, the the potential mitigation to that, to Instagram, is like Instagram's cultural DNA and Facebook's business model is about the attention suck. And that is not the culture, neither the cultural DNA nor the business model of Pinterest. The biggest reason to be a bear here isn't that it's not going to be a good business or they're not going to be able to maintain the size of the business. Unless, of course, you think that Instagram is going to come and eat all their lunch. Um, It's that, frankly, it's just the smallest of these, these online ad platform companies. And when disruptive markets are created, the biggest opportunities tend to get filled first, and then the smallest one, the smaller ones tend to get filled over time. So, you know, when we saw 
Um, let's take marketplace businesses, for example, uh, and the sharing economy. If you look at what people spend in GDP, it, they spend on their house, they spend on transportation, then they spend on food. And you look at sort of Airbnb, and then you look at Uber and Lyft, and then you look, you at, look at DoorDash, you know, and, DoorDash and, 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 and Instacart. And, you know, when you see a new paradigm like online advertising, you know, you see the biggest ones that are are taken are intent-based search. And then there's, uh, you know, w- what we didn't realize was going to be such a big market, but social media advertising. And then there's this new thing that is, uh, you know, I guess, discovery-based or inspiration-based or curation-based advertising, which is just smaller. Like, it's just not a bigger thing. I was going to wait to make this point in, in grading, but since we're already here, I, I want to make the point that when I first started researching, I was thinking there's basically two distinct online advertising markets. They're social-based and they're search-based. But Pinterest is really somewhere between there with the curation and discovery-based. And I think now I'm thinking about it more of as more as a spectrum. And I think if you think about it as sort of a smiling curve where there's way more value creation if you go pure search or pure social, there's there's less in the middle because frankly, you're not spending as much time there and you're not doing mission critical things there as much as you are do, during, during search. Um, but you know, it, it's still a, a super sticky product, a super useful product and a, a product that monetizes well. It's just not one of the other two. Yeah. Well, I think this is building off kind of the the end of history and facts here where we alluded to this. I'm not sure that it's not that the value is, I think there's a ton of value in Pinterest and what they offer to advertisers in this discovery engine works incredibly well and is very unique. The The, the problem though is, is just the product itself, the consumer product, uh, is a niche product, a very large niche. Um, but, uh, you know, we alluded to it in history and facts. Uh, there are 86 million ish, uh, uh, MAUs in the U S and a very, very, very high percentage of them are women and men, um, despite years of trying on Pinterest part, just don't use the product in nearly as high, high a percentage. They've tried to fix it. I just don't know that it's fixable with what the product is. So thus, it's just a smaller market. Everyone is aware that they need to search for stuff. And a third of those or a quarter of those people are aware that they need to be inspired and and curate stuff based on what inspires them. Yep. Hard to know if it is specifically men or women or that's just the way the psychological profile of users of Pinterest tend to fall out. Um, but there is a huge segment uh, or segments of of the population at least domestically that despite years of knowing about pinterest trying to use it just really isn't going to become engaged and use it in the same way as the other segments so you know i mean i think when you really think about it maybe this is the way to think about it with with pinterest the market for the core pinterest product is the same market as lifestyle magazines and if you think about what is the life the market for lifestyle magazines there it tends to skew heavily towards women design magazines home magazines uh fashion magazines there certainly are men that that read lifestyle magazines but just at a much smaller degree and that is the market that is where there is core fit with the pinterest product and i think it's had and probably will continue to have a very hard time expanding outside of that all right, so that's our bear case. Let's talk how did the IPO go? So despite my pure burning hatred for this term, undercorn. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible, terrible term. They uh, they effectively had a down round IPO. 
And let's talk about sort of flat what, round, flat round, flat round IPO. Well, yes. Um, uh, the, yeah, I think it's technically flat. Okay. The share price was lower, but because there were new shares issued, the end market cap uh, was higher. Okay. So this has happened before, and we covered it well on the Square episode, where it was so significant of a down round at the IPO that it actually took, what, a year or more to to climb back up to their last private valuation price. And so, you know, you saw people who uh, had stock options at a strike price before the, the IPO, where then they actually had to wait years and years for that to recover from being underwater. So they actually had a, a compensation issue across the board at the company. That's not at all the case with Pinterest. Basically, you know, everyone is in the clear now. Now, of course, if you look and and see that people bought shares at an $11 billion valuation four years ago, and it's at 13 now, you know, that's not a, a, a phenomenal return uh, like it is for any of these early investors. But I'm not sure that they could have done anything better. And I think it was probably smart of them to not try to make this an up round for vanity purposes. They obviously saw what happened with the aftermath of the Lyft IPO. And uh, they, they swung the pendulum hard the other way <laughs> in being conservative here. It's interesting to know that we have another data point here of the uh, public markets valuing companies within range of where the private markets have been. And I think like there was a lot of fear coming into this wave of IPOs that those two things were going to be dramatically, dramatically different. It, it doesn't feel like they are. No, feels like they were they've been at the very least priced appropriately in the private markets, maybe appropriately a couple of years ahead of the curve, but uh, not completely mispriced. So I do think that's actually a great segue into what would have happened otherwise in talking about, so why did they go public? Could they have not gone public? Could they have done a direct listing? One thing uh, that I found really interesting was that they actually have $600 million of cash in the bank, and they've raised about a billion and a half over, over time. Their net operating loss right now after tax in 2017 was 126 million was and last year was 63 million so you know they're trending toward profitability they actually probably didn't need to raise any money in this IPO yeah this is really puzzling to me and we were talking about this before the show so by those numbers even if they maintain the same burn rate which they won't cuz they're trending to profitability assuming revenue keeps growing they have years of runway still in the bank why did they just raise all this money and dilute themselves? This seems like a clear-cut case for me for doing a DPO. Yeah, David, it does feel like they totally could have done a direct offering here. I mean, they've got cash in the bank. They're going to get profitable. I do wonder, are they They have Leslie up? Kilgore on their board, you know, <laughs> access to Barry McCarthy here. <laughs> And and you know it's uh, that went well enough that we're hearing rumors Slack is going to to do a direct listing here in the near future. And so there could be two things going on. One is they feel that their ability to raise cash right now is on really favorable terms, so it's great to get that cash into the company for an unknown purpose. The other is maybe they're gearing up for some some serious spend, and they're going to branch out into something that re requires a lot of new cash. The same way that Stitch Fix used a lot of their cash from their IPO to actually start. Um, retail brands that that are our first party brands. So um, 
you know, I'm, I'm not sure that this international expansion is interesting because it's growing really fast from a user perspective because they actually started caring about that in, in 2016, whereas they were very domestically focused until then. But um, they're really not monetizing uh, at any significance internationally. So it could be to spend aggressively on um, bringing advertisers into a, an, the, their international funnel. But it's honestly a little puzzling. I agree as well. This all would have had to be in the works long before the Lyft IPO, but you know the only other reason I can think of is just to be conservative as well and make sure things go well because DPOs are still relatively unproven. Um, but again, if you don't need the cash, like uh, it, which to be clear, <laughs> Lyft and and Uber need the cash, <laughs> and we'll talk about that on the Uber episode. But if you don't need the cash, and companies have raised so much in the private markets. DPO really seems like the way to go. There's no lockup period. There's you're not diluting yourself. You're not selling more at the company. It has a lot of advantages. I, I'm you can tell I'm of the Barry McCarthy school of thought here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we've seen one DPO, and here we are now asking, like we're looking at every deal, going, why not? Why not DPO? Why not DPO? I mean, look, they did the standard thing, and they did it pretty well. And I think uh, it's not like just because. Spotify did it. That's a thing that everyone feels like is a a uh, one of two options they can pursue now. Yeah. Yet. 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 We'll see on Slack. Uh, okay. Should we move to our newly retitled next yes. section? Yes. So, yes. David, t- tell us about this retitling. Yeah. So, okay. This is ordinarily where we would do tech themes. Uh, but Ben and I were texting the other day, and we love tech themes. It's one of our favorite parts of the show. But we realized that, like... It's actually something more than that, and Tech Themes kind of sells it short. So we're going to rename this section to Playbook. And what's actually really interesting here is not just what themes in tech this particular company's story reflects, but what are like the actionable things that we can learn from this story that we can all put in our playbooks you know, as operators, as investors. And we think this will be really cool and a good way in the spirit of Pinterest to catalog all the things we're learning from hey this yo. show over time. Hey, yo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're going to, this is going to be our first experiment with playbook. Yep. All right. So we focused on this one, but I just want to highlight it. What makes Pinterest different is a significant focus on building out infrastructure in the company ahead of growth in wild contrast to, to other unicorn cousins. Yep. <laughs> I worry a little bit that people will take the wrong lesson from the surface level facts here. And this is one of the reasons we do this show. You look at the way Pinterest has carried itself over the last 10 years, and then you, you look at the way, say, Uber or Lyft have carried themselves or Airbnb too. And like, there is definite craziness going on within those other companies and their markets are so much bigger and they will probably end up being bigger companies in the long run. Pinterest, the market is smaller. It's extremely well managed and will be a smaller company in the long run, but I feel like much better managed. Uh, The lesson is not don't manage your company well. (laughs) The lesson (laughs) is uh, target big markets, one and two manage your company well such that you have the highest probability of succeeding within them. <laughs> yep. It's a, it's a it's a great elaboration there. Another point that I wanted to I think this is really more a point of discussion and David we talked on the LP show about the downsides of being a tools business rather than a platform or a network or a marketplace. Um Pinterest is kind of a tools business in that it's much more about me and maybe a handful of other people I'm sharing a board with um, 
And it's much less about communicating with other people, seeing what other people are up to. Uh, so it has, I think, less significant network effects. How how do you juxtapose it sort of being a tools business, but competing uh, for the very same advertisers that these like strong, strong network effect businesses are competing ah, for? Yes, great. Okay, this is this is one of my entries in the playbook here. You could debate on the network effects aspect and certainly social network effects in the way that Facebook, Instagram, you know, et cetera, have them. Um, Pinterest does not. But I think they do have a very strong flywheel. Uh, we should do a whole LP episode where we've talked about this, where we just nerd out on like what we think the differences are between network effects and flywheels and whatnot. But the flywheel is users add content and pins to the site. The more pins there are in the site, the more things there are that users, new users and existing users can get inspired by and then repin. And so there's a super strong flywheel where as people come on and they add content, that content drives more engagement from more users who add more content, which drives more users within the segment of people who find this whole thing attractive. <laughs> Even if it's not a super strong uh, network effect, you can still have a super strong flywheel. Yeah, like I don't care. I mean, well, maybe we should have an acquired pin board. So in that case, I would care that you, Ben, are on the service. But if we don't have a reason to collaborate, I don't care that like you or like any of my other friends are specifically are on the yeah. service. But I care that a lot of other people are because then they're adding content. They care about the content. Right. Right. And like, I, I don't mean to say there's not network effects. I mean, you could imagine a way worse version of Pinterest, which is you can't <laughs> discover anything that anybody else uploaded. Like there's not a business yeah. there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a tool, but the back end of that personal tool is powered by the incredible amount of, of data and work that everyone yeah. else on the platform has done. What I think a lesson there is like an interesting one of to maybe modify the from our LP show, uh, you know, the lesson wasn't quite don't build tools, but it was like tools are limited. But if you can figure out how to make a tool that gets better for users as more people are on the service, it's sort of like Jake was talking about on with his coaching networks thesis at Emergence, that can create a powerful flywheel. Yep. Do you have more? Nope, that's it. Cool. I had a couple real quick. Um, one, I was just struck in the history and facts, like, and we talked about it, 2008 and the recession and the Lehman Brothers collapse, like these massive events that happen in the economy uh, and socially can have like such opportunity, you know, even in like recessions, like um, uh, Airbnb. And again, we'll we've talked about this before and we'll cover it in depth on when we do an episode on them someday, like what enabled Airbnb was the recession and specifically the housing crisis and same in, in a much less direct way, you know, led to the history that led to Pinterest uh, and led to the history that led to Lyft. Whenever these big events happen, it's always a good idea to just pick your head up and say, hmm, okay, what is this going to, what retilling of the soil is this going to enable now, both as an investor and thinking about starting companies? The other thing I wanted to, that I think this this story illustrates is just the power sometimes of just not stopping you know like ben's story and and uh tote and cold brew labs and pinterest and like doing the business plan competition you know it would have been so easy to just give it up you know uh and not stopping doesn't mean banging your head against a wall with something that isn't working it means not giving up on the idea of like building something period like pivot what you're doing into something that's going to work and listen to users and find product market fit but just calling game over means literally game over 
Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of a great quote. So Bo Lu, the CEO of Future Advisor, uh, spoke at one of the first startup weekends that I organized like a decade ago or something. And um, I remember him saying, the way to succeed is to just never admit failure. Like, as long as you don't shut down, you haven't lost. And <laughs> that's not fully true. Like, that's a good way to, you, that you can have a, you know, small business that doesn't grow at all and just keep going. But like, it, I think what you're saying is, if what you're looking to do is big, build something big and impactful, as long as you don't give up and build in the direction of what what could catch, it's unlikely that you will do that for your entire life and and have something that never works. So just keep trying. And of course, <laughs> well, the, it's like <laughs> there's. I think it's that there's two versions of giving up and or, or, or failing. Uh, one version of it is what we are doing is not working. We have failed at that. We are going to give up doing that. That's great. Like when that's clearly the case, like you should do that and do that as soon as possible. But don't do the other version of giving up, which is saying, and thus we are going to call game over and shut down the company and like go get jobs somewhere, you know, <laughs> uh, as long as you still have the desire and the resources to keep going, like, yep, keep going. Yep. You know? And there's tremendous value in keeping a team together. You know, this is something I think that we realize at Pioneer Square Labs, the, the 25 of us that all sort of like systematically build companies over and over and over again is after you fail on a few things together or maybe even succeed on a few things together, you know in your small group who's good at what. You have norms and communication patterns and operations around how you work together and you get way more efficient at building together. So if something didn't work, like keeping the team together and keeping your processes intact and and keeping your knowledge of what each other's competencies are is hugely valuable. And so I think for for anyone considering a pivot, I mean it's it's almost like yeah, you bring some baggage when you pivot, but you bring far more value from being a team that knows how to work together. Yeah, it's almost like the playbook is if you think you need to pivot, you you probably should have pivoted, you know, a month ago. Uh but uh, if you're thinking about shutting down your company and you still have a team you like and, and you know, money in the bank or whatever resources you need to keep going, you should definitely not shut down your company. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Grading. So the way that we grade these IPOs is rather than issuing a grade, we discuss what uh, a few years from now an A plus would look like versus, you know, say a C, D or an F. David, I'll go first. I think an A plus looks like cracking international monetization. I think this company can continue to grow to become a $20, $30 billion market cap company over time if they can figure out how to continue growth internationally and how to monetize internationally like they, they do domestically. Um, I don't think it's a crazy playbook to do that, but I don't think there's a bigger success path than that. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to say like the A plus to me is yeah, I suppose that's they an take a. this. They, yeah, I think that's an A. That's like an A minus to A. The A plus is they take all this money they just raised in the IPO and they have some vision that they are keeping secret for now. And Ben isn't telling anyone yet about how they're going to expand the market here. And they use this, these resources, whether through acquisition or or investment internally to do that. That would be like, Yes, that takes them to, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar market cap company. I think it's really hard. Like, I have no idea what that vision would be. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I think that's hard. But yeah, so I, otherwise, I think the scenario you described is like super solid 
A minus to A. You know, there's a possibility that they won't be able to monetize internationally like they they can with the U.S. Um, or even that people start churning off of them because Instagram manages to launch something that that sort of leverages their really close relationship with users to get them to start using a Pinterest-like experience. Um, and, you know, Facebook is a total shark at figuring out whether they have something there or not uh, and, and rolling it out broadly. So my F there would be if, one, they can't monetize internationally, or two, uh, uh, they get their legs cut out by Facebook. You know, one thing that we didn't, usually we find these things when we do our research, um, but for whatever reason we didn't this time, is do you think Facebook ever tried to buy Pinterest or anybody else tried to buy Pinterest? So Facebook did not, I, not that not that I found, try to buy Pinterest. There actually was a story very early on in New oh, York yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. where, yeah. Ben tried to encourage a magazine publisher to to buy them, uh, but the publisher <laughs> this is back to when they were the tote, I think, right? Yeah, it was like 2010 yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that um, doesn't count. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's because nobody ever did try to buy Pinterest, or their valuation grew so quickly, just never or just leaked. like the company is so quiet and introverted <laughs> that yeah. the stories never got told. But this is a, a rarity in that there aren't stories like this out there. It's kind of interesting to think about: could anyone buy them? Maybe Facebook. Yeah, I mean, their valuation is, you know, they're a $16 billion market cap company. Of course, somebody could buy them. Facebook could buy them. Amazon could buy them. Um, you know, wh- or you know, I guess where would it make sense? Yeah. And also like culturally, <laughs> you know, I think Pinterest would be very attractive to Facebook right now for lots of reasons, but could it work <laughs> culturally within the company? Uh, I think that'd be hard. Yeah. Well, I think Facebook needs to do something to change both public perception and retain employees. So it, it wouldn't strike me to see Facebook do something dramatic soon. And so the C minus D case, I think, is is that they have fully saturated monetization in the U.S. They can't monetize internationally. And this is a break-even $700 million to a $1 billion revenue business going forward. Yeah. And frankly, like they just raised a bunch of cash. Like the way that we grade these acquisitions is when you acquire this asset, are you able to do something interesting with it? You know, with this IPO, it's like they've just raised all this money. What are they going to do with it? So I think, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to see them um, take a shot on goal with that. Seed IPOs. <laughs> <laughs> Got to spend the money. Uh, all right. Should we move on to carve outs? Yeah, let's do it. Um, mine is I've done this podcast before, but there was just an exceptional episode. Uh, invest like the best. It's a great podcast. Ah, so good. Uh, really good interview show. Recently I had an episode with Eugene way and, uh, Eugene wrote this great blog post, invisible asymptotes, which shouldn't even call it. An, it's an, it's an essay. It's a half novel. And Eugene is super brilliant. And there's five or six very interesting takeaways from, um, this invest like the best episode. My, uh, favorite of them is is applying blockchain theory to social networks. So if you think about what makes a blockchain work, um, there is proof of work, and then there is a reward for doing that work. And the reward is sort of synonymously the proof of work and a um, has, some, has an intrinsic value thing, and that propagates out over a network. And I had never thought before to use that paradigm to apply it to a social network. And so when you do something like post on Instagram, you're doing a proof of work 
and you're putting up that picture. That picture has you know value, and you get likes and follows uh, in exchange for doing that work. And the people who are the most successful on that platform are the people who are able to work within the constraints of that social media to basically do the most interesting thing within those constraints. And a successful social network happens when you are able to create a format that where that proof of work is extremely variable. So the the breadth of skill is you can do really crappy things with it and you can also do amazing, wonderful things with it. And also that the uh, perception of the value of the proof of work is variable. And so it's uh, not everybody agrees that that is the best picture um, and, and everybody can sort of have a different interpretation of what high quality is. And a new social network can emerge when there is a tool set to do that proof of work, to make that profile, to do that image, whatever it is, that enables, uh, and of course I am uh, Eugene says it much more eloquently. Um, but I'm only even trying to follow along because of my respect for you and Eugene. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have lost me at blockchain. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, anyway, okay. <laughs> d- 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 suffice to say, it's interesting fodder if you're thinking about how do new social paradigms emerge and what creates uh, explosive growth social network and what doesn't. And I think the comparison to blockchain is a... Uh, um, a metaphor. Is, it's an interesting framework, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so great. So great. Patrick does an awesome job with the Invest Like the Best podcast. And uh, uh, I love it. If, if, if you're an acquired listener who doesn't listen to that yet, um, you definitely are going to love it too. So add it to your, your playlist. Okay. Mine is, well, first I want to underscore, Ben, your carve out on the Lyft IPO episode, uh, Bill Gurley's talk about running down a dream and finding and succeeding in a career you love i did run not walk to go watch it and it is so good i sent it to so many friends like so great i just have so much respect for bill and uh every dimension but um so cool of him to like do this talk go do it at his alma mater at ut it's really inspiring no matter where you are in your career so i would definitely want to underscore if you haven't watched that yet go watch it but my my carve out for the week is uh similar somebody who has found a career uh that he loves and is succeeding at it is alex rodriguez a rod a <laughs> rod's interviews on espn and on youtube are so good like i just love watching them whatever you think about a rod the baseball player like a rod the post-career you know uh video and television journalist and interviewer is amazing like he's so smart he's so dedicated to was so dedicated to his craft of playing baseball and hitting and now to being an interviewer and just like watching him nerd out with with other people who are also dedicated to their craft is is great so every interview is great uh one of my favorites is uh, his interview with uh astros center fielder george springer um so we'll link to that he also has a great one with giancarlo stanton at the yankees and um but you, you can't go wrong watch search a rod on youtube you'll 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 enjoy yourself <laughs> thanks david well listeners if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear you should subscribe. We'll be gloriously covering all of the big upcoming IPOs. And if you want to go deeper on what it's like to build a startup, get interviews with expert operators and VCs, and explore some of my personal beliefs, and I know David's as well, you should become a limited partner. You can go to glow.fm slash acquired. Seriously, I promise you'll be overjoyed with how buttery smooth it is to get more acquired right here in your favorite podcast player. And as of today, everyone starts with a free seven-day trial. 
And with that, thanks again to Perkins Coie, our wonderful sponsors for all season four, and we will see you next time. Yeah.